Hi. Hello. What's up? How's it hanging? I appreciate you joining me today for another episode of Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah. Let's get started. On tonight's episode, I will be talking about the Boston Marathon bombing. The 117th annual Boston Marathon was scheduled to run on Patriots Day, April 15th of 2013. In total, there were 23,336 competitors from all 50 states, as well as 92 countries. The temperature at the start of the race was in the upper 40s and climbed to 54 at the finish. Lulisa de Siza from Ethiopia beat out two other runners in a three-way sprint to finish first in the men's division. Rita Jepto from Kenya finished first in the women's division. Hiroki Yamamoto of Japan won the men's wheelchair race, and Tatiana McFadden from the United States won the women's wheelchair race. At 2.49 p.m., two bombs detonated about 210 yards apart at the finish line. When the first explosion happened, the race clock at the finish line showed 4 hours, 9 minutes, and 43 seconds. That was the elapsed time since Wave 3 started at 10.04 a.m. The explosions took place nearly three hours after the winning runner had crossed the finish line. There were more than 5,700 runners that had not yet finished. Adjacent buildings had windows blown out, but with no structural damage. Runners continued to cross the finish line until 2.57 p.m. During the race, there are rescue workers and medical personnel on hand in case someone needs them. They gave aid as additional police, fire, and medical units were dispatched. Private ambulances from all over the state came to assist. The explosion killed three civilians and injured an estimated 264 others. They were all treated at 27 local hospitals. Of those injured, 14 required amputations, with some suffering traumatic amputations as a direct result of the explosions. Police closed a 15-block area around the blast site and diverted arriving runners to Boston Common and Kenmore Square. Surrounding buildings were evacuated as a precaution. There were many false reports received due to the number of dropped bags and packages that were abandoned as their owners fled the blasts. It increased uncertainty as to the possibility of more bombs. There was an electrical fire at John F. Kennedy Presidential Library that was initially feared to be a bomb, but later determined that it was not. Airspace over Boston was restricted, and departures were halted from Boston's Logan International Airport. Some local transit services were also halted. With many hotels closing because of their radius to the blast zone, a number of visitors were left with nowhere to stay. Boston area residents opened their homes to them. Because of the crowded phone lines, the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency suggested people trying to contact those in the vicinity to use text messages instead of phone calls. Despite some local media reporting that the cell phone service was shut down to prevent phone calls from being used as detonators, it remained in operation, but with some congestion. 
The American Red Cross helped concerned friends and family receive information regarding runners and casualties. A helpline for people concerned about their relatives or acquaintances was set up by the Boston Police Department to allow them to contact each other and provide more information. Google Person Finder activated their disaster service under Boston Marathon Explosions to log known information about missing people. The FBI led the investigation and were assisted by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, as well as the CIA, the National Counterterrorism Center, and the DEA. There was speculation by some that North Korea was behind the attack, but it was later determined that they were not involved. A United States government official stated that there had been no intelligence reports suggesting that North Korea was involved. Evidence that was found near the blast sites included bits of metal, nails, ball bearings, black nylon pieces from a backpack, parts of an electronic circuit board, and wiring. A pressure cooker lid was found on a nearby rooftop as well. It was determined that both bombs were pressure cooker bombs. Several people were taken into custody and questioned about the bombing, one of whom was a Saudi man who was stopped by police as he was casually walking away after the attack. His residence was searched and he was found to have no connection. Jeff Bauman, who was adjacent to one of the attacks, lost both of his legs. He gave a very detailed description of the suspects, which enabled images of them to be identified. The FBI released images of two suspects carrying backpacks and asked for the public's help to identify them on April 18th. The suspects stayed to observe the chaos after the explosions and then walked away. After the FBI identified the suspects as T and D Sarsnov, their father claimed that the FBI had been watching his family. They claimed that they visited his son's home in Cambridge several times as a caution. Authorities learned that the brothers used bomb-making instructions found in an Al-Qaeda Inspire magazine. On April 19th, the FBI, NYPD, and Hudson County Sheriff's Department seized computer equipment from the apartment of their sister in New Jersey. It was later determined that the bombs were triggered by remote controls used for toy cars. A few hours after the photos were released, the brothers ambushed and shot Sean Collier of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Police Department six times in an attempt to steal his sidearm. He was seated in his police car near Building 32. He died soon after the shooting. The brothers then carjacked a Mercedes in the Alliston Brighton neighborhood. They took the owner hostage and told him that he was responsible for the bombing and for killing a police officer. They forced the owner of the Mercedes to use his ATM card to obtain $800. While stopped at a gas station, the owner escaped and ran across the street to another gas station and begged the clerk to call 911. Joseph Reynolds, a Watertown police officer, identified the brothers who were driving in a Hyundai and the stolen Mercedes. He followed the vehicle while waiting for additional units to perform a high-risk traffic stop. T stepped out of his vehicle and immediately started opening fire on Officer Reynolds and Sergeant John McLean. They returned fire while requesting emergency assistance over their radios. 
A violent gun battle ensued between the officers for roughly seven minutes. It was estimated that 200 to 300 rounds of ammo were fired. At least one pressure cooker bomb and several grenades were thrown at the officers. According to the Watertown police chief, the brothers had an arsenal of guns in their vehicle. When T ran out of ammo, he threw his empty pistol at Sergeant Jeffrey Puglis. Sergeant Jeffrey tackled him with the assistance from Sergeant McLean. D then drove the stolen Mercedes toward T and the police. The car ran over T and dragged him a short distance from the street, narrowly missing the Watertown officers. D then abandoned the car a half a mile away and fled on foot. T was taken into custody and transferred to Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, where he was pronounced dead at 1.35 a.m. The Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority police officer Richard Donahue was wounded in the crossfire from other officers shooting at the fleeing vehicle but survived. Boston Police Department officer Dennis Simmons was injured by one of the grenades and died on April 10th of 2014. Fifteen other officers were also injured. Only one firearm was recovered at the scene. On April 19th, Watertown residents received automated calls asking them to remain indoors. A 20-block area of Watertown was cordoned off. Helicopters circled the area and SWAT teams in armored vehicles moved through the area in search of D. Officers also went door-to-door. The entire public transit network and most of Boston's taxi services were suspended. Same went for the Amtrak service to and from Boston. Many businesses, schools, and other facilities were closed as thousands of law enforcement personnel participated in the door-to-door manhunt of D. Several officers did a search of the brothers' home in Cambridge where they found seven improvised explosives. Their father spoke from his home, encouraging D to give up. He said, you have a bright future ahead of you. Come home to Russia. If they kill him, all hell will break loose. D's uncle also pleaded with him to turn himself in. David Hennenberry, a Watertown resident, noticed the tarp on his boat was loose. He proceeded to investigate and saw a body lying inside of a pool of blood. He contacted the authorities who surrounded the boat. A police helicopter verified movement through a thermal imaging device. The suspect started to poke at the tarp, prompting police to shoot at the boat. D was arrested at 8.42 p.m. and taken to Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, where he was listed in critical condition. He had gunshot wounds to the head, neck, legs, and hand. There were initial reports of the neck wound representing a suicide attempt, but that was contradicted by him being unarmed. There was a review by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts with the following summary. One officer fired his weapon without appropriate authority in response to perceived movement in the boat. Surrounding officers followed suit in a round of contagious fire, assuming that they were being fired at by the suspect. Weapons continued to be fired for several seconds until an on-scene supervisor ordered a ceasefire and regained control. The unauthorized shots created a dangerous crossfire situation. It was chaotic. United States Senators Kelly Ayati, Saxby Cambliss, 
Lindsey Graham, and John McCain suggested that D, who was a U.S. citizen, should be tried as an unlawful enemy combatant rather than a criminal. This was potentially preventing him from obtaining legal counsel. The government decided to try D in the federal criminal court system and not as an enemy combatant. He was questioned for 16 hours by investigators, but immediately stopped communicating after Judge Mary Ann Bowler read him a Miranda warning. He had not previously been given a Miranda warning as federal law enforcement officials invoked the warning's public safety exception. This raised many doubts whether his statements during the investigation could be admissible as evidence. Formal criminal charges were brought against D on April 22nd of 2013 in the United States District Court for the District of Massachusetts during a bedside hearing while he was in the hospital. He was charged with the use of a weapon of mass destruction and malicious destruction of property resulting in death. He could potentially be sentenced to life in prison or the death penalty. On April 26th, D was moved from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to the Federal Medical Center at Fort Devens, roughly 40 miles from Boston. He was held in solitary confinement with a 23-hour-per-day lockdown. On July 10th of 2013, he pleaded not guilty to 30 charges in his first public court appearance. This included a murder charge of MIT police officer Sean Collier. On April 2nd, his attorneys asked the court to lift the special administrative measures. His attorney claimed that the measures had left D unduly isolated from communication with his family and lawyers and that there was no evidence that he posed a future threat. On January 5th, 2015, the jury selection began and was completed on March 3rd. The trial began the next day. Assistant U.S. Attorney William Weinred called the brothers equal participants in the attack. Defense attorney Judy Clark did admit that Dee had placed the second bomb and was present at the murder of Sean Collier, the carjacking, and the Watertown shootout, but emphasized the influence of his older brother. There were more than 90 witnesses called by the prosecution, including bombing survivors who described losing limbs in the attack. They rested their case on March 30th. The defense, however, only called four witnesses and rested their case on March 31st. On April 8th, D was found guilty on all 30 counts. His sentencing trial began on April 21st, and by May 15th, it was recommended that he be put to death. He was officially sentenced to death on June 24th after apologizing to the victims. His lawyers put in an appeal in 2018 on the grounds that a lower court refused to move the case to another city and that it deprived him of a fair trial. The United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit reversed his death sentence on July 20th of 2020. They found that the district court did not properly screen jurors on how much they had heard of the case during the jury selection. They vacated the death sentence and three of the other convictions. A new penalty phase jury trial was ordered with new jurors, and the decision to change venues was left up to the district court. Regardless of the results of the new trial, Dee's remaining convictions still carry multiple life sentences, so he will remain in prison. Now here's a little bit of a background on T and D. 
T was born in 1986 and D was born in 1993. Their family immigrated to the United States in 2002 where they applied for political asylum and settled in Cambridge, Massachusetts. T attended Bunker Hill Community College but dropped out because he wanted to become a boxer. His goal was to get on the U.S. Olympic boxing team. He married U.S. citizen Catherine Russell on July 15th of 2010. He was once quoted saying, I don't have a single American friend. I don't understand them. He later explained that he was misquoted and that most of his friends were American. The brothers were Muslims, with their aunt stating that T had recently become a devout Muslim in 2009. The FBI was informed by the Russian Federal Security Service in 2011 that he was a follower of radical Islam. He was interviewed, but there was no evidence of terrorism activity, domestic or foreign. D was a student at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth with a major in marine biology at the time of the bombing. September 11, 2012, he became a naturalized citizen. T was previously connected to a triple homicide in Waltham that happened on the evening of September 11, 2011. At one time, T described murder victim Brendan Mess as his best friend. That case was re-examined in April of 2013 with T as the new suspect. Both ABC and the New York Times reported that there were strong evidence which implicated T in this triple homicide. As I mentioned earlier, three people were killed in the bombing. 29-year-old Crystal Campbell, 23-year-old Lou Lingzi, and 8-year-old Martin Richard. On July 24, 2013, the very last victim was released from the hospital. His name is Mark Fusarilli. He suffered from severe burns, shrapnel wounds, and ultimately lost his right leg. A film about the bombing and manhunt was released in December of 2016 called Patriot's Day. Another film that chronicles the experience of survivor Jeff Bauman called Stronger was released in September of 2017. Boston University established a scholarship in honor of Lou Lingzi. University of Massachusetts Boston did the same thing in honor of alumni and bombing victim Crystal Campbell. MIT also established a scholarship and erected a sculpture both in memory of MIT police officer Sean Collier. A monument memorializing the victims was completed at the bombing site on August 19th of 2019. On the second anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombings, Mayor Marty Walsh established April 15th, the day of the bombings, as an official and permanent holiday called One Boston Day, dedicated to conducting random acts of kindness and helping others out. Over the past four years, some examples of acts of kindness being done have been donating blood to the American Red Cross, donating food to the Greater Boston Food Bank, opening free admission in places like the Museum of Science and Museum of Fine Arts, donating shoes to homeless shelters, and donating to military and veteran charities. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Be sure to follow me on social media to get notifications when a new episode airs. You can find me on Twitter at The Murder Bucket, Instagram at Murd Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. 
Do you love listening to true crime stories? Do you react out loud to details of the case? Do you have a dark and twisted sense of humor? Do you love cats? Wait, what? Then you should listen to our podcast, ODFM, One from Murder. Each week, you'll hear our retelling of real-life murder cases, some famous, some little known. We'll give you our in-the-moment reactions, inappropriate humor, and the occasional feline commentary. You can listen to ODFM Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and more. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or on our website, odfmpodcast.com. But remember, this podcast is not for the fate of heart. Or those without a twisted sense of humor. 